You are now listening to the May 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello listeners, this is Brian from Story of Kings. The prophet Samuel mourned for Saul because of his disobedience to God and how he was then rejected. Then God appeared to Samuel. God told him not to be distressed about Saul and go to Bethlehem and meet with Jesse and his family. God said he would choose a king among Jesse's sons. The scripture from 1 Samuel Chapter 16, verse 1 reads, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel followed God's instruction and took a heifer to visit Bethlehem. There, he met Jesse's eighth son, David, whom God had prepared. David was a young boy who played the harp and wrote poems. He was also brave enough to stand up to a lion or bear who attacked the flock of sheep under his care. When attacked, he would fight the beast and save the sheep from its mouth. Above his musical talent or literary disposition, above his bravery over wild beasts, More than anything, he trusted and put his faith in God. Samuel poured oil on David's head as God's anointed. According to biblical scholars, David must have been about 15 to 17 year olds at that time. At that time, Israel's arch nemesis, the Philistines, moved in again to invade Israel. This time, they came behind a champion called Goliath, Goliath was a scary giant. His height was six cubits in a span, and that in today's measure would be over nine feet tall. This giant wore a scale armor and carried a huge sword, speared, and javelin so big and heavy, a normal person would not be able to handle it. When he appeared, he screamed at the Israelites and touted them to engage him in combat. None of the Israelites stood up to him. Then came David. David came in God's name to fight the scary giant. When he stood before Goliath to engage him in combat, he didn't wear any armor. He stood before the giant with five stones from the brook and a sling. The sling that David used was a serious weapon commonly used in battles. It generated speeds of a hundred miles per hour and flung a stone well over a hundred yards. Even though the sling was a good weapon and the Israelites had this weapon under their disposal, no one really had the nerve to go against the giant and the Philistine army. After 40 days of stalemate, two forces standing face to face against each other, the first one to step forward to fight was the young boy David. When the Philistine army 
saw the young boy stepping forward as the champion of the Israelites' army, they looked down on the Israelites and despised the boy. It looked like a desperate act on the part of the Israelites. The Philistines thought Goliath, their champion, would surely win. Little did they know that David came to the battleground armed with a faith in God. David went at Goliath, exclaiming, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David confronted Goliath in the name of Jehovah, and Goliath came to David with a spear and a shield. The confrontation, of course, ended in David's victory. When the Philistines saw how Goliath was defeated, they fell in panic and began to run. The army of Israel and Judah pursued the Philistines and routed them. You can imagine how uplifting this victory must have been for the Israelites. All the Israelites, along with Saul, were overjoyed. Ever since then, David acted wisely wherever and whenever Saul sent for him, and under David, the Israelites were victorious. Saul eventually appointed David as the commander of an army. However, David's relationship with Saul began to take on a dark side. The more successful David became, the more wary Saul became of David. Saul became jealous of David and began to germinate a seed of hostility towards David, especially when his people praised David over him by singing, Saul has slain thousand and David his ten thousand. His jealousy turned into fear. Saul became afraid of David, thinking he could lose his throne to him. Out of desperation, he attacked David when they were in close proximity. He hurled his spear twice at David. Can you imagine Saul doing that while David was playing the harp for him? When the direct confrontation did not work, Saul began to scheme against David. Saul appointed David as the commander of a thousand and sent him to battlegrounds in hopes that he would be killed in the battlefield. In fact, he put up a reward for David to justify sending him to all these battles. Saul said he was doing that to help David to attain the right to marry his first daughter. On the surface, it looked like Saul was doing David a favor, but underneath, there was a sinister plot. Amazingly, David came through all those countless battles unscathed. Not even a hair of David was harmed. He was victorious because God was with him. Saul's discontent towards David continued on a downward spiral and became worse and worse. He dreaded David and his jealousy deepened. He gave away his first daughter to someone else to marry, though he had promised her to David. Around that time, Saul found out that his second daughter, Michael, was in love with David. With that, Saul saw an opportunity to trap David. He posed to David, if he wants to marry Michael, he has to bring a hundred foreskins of Philistines. The foreskin is the skin that is cut off at circumcision. Saul reasoned to bring the hundred foreskins of Philistines, David would have to kill all hundred of them. 
Since that was an impossible task, David would likely be killed in the process. Even if he survives, he would certainly not be able to bring a hundred foreskins and would forfeit the deal. However, to Saul's surprise, David brought two hundred foreskins, twice what Saul called for. Saul had no choice but to give away Michael to David in marriage. Saul became even more sinister toward David and was bent on killing him. However, David was able to elude Saul time and time again. Ultimately, David escaped Saul's impending threat with the help of his wife Michael and his friend and Saul's son Jonathan. Nevertheless, Saul did not give up. He chased after David with the intent to kill. He pursued David with 3,000 soldiers. While being chased, David headed to Nob in the north of Jerusalem and met Ahimelech, the priest there. With the help of Ahimelech, he was able to obtain consecrated bread for food and Goliath's sword for his weapon. When Saul found out about it, he killed all the priests, people, and livestock in Nob, thinking Ahimelech helped David because he acknowledged David as the king and by doing so, he betrayed Saul. This murderous act actually ended up fulfilling a prophecy that had been made against the house of Eli. In 1 Samuel, God judged the house of priest Eli for losing the Ark of Covenant to the Philistines, for Eli's sons stealing the sacrificial offering and their sleeping with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The cat and mouse game between Saul and David where Saul pursued David with intent to kill, and David eluding Saul's pursuit, continued for 13 years. During that time, Samuel, who had anointed both Saul and David, passed away. The Philistines attacked Israel whenever they had a chance. When they saw that Israel's spiritual leader had died, they saw that as an opportunity. Even better, they saw Saul was busy chasing after David. They came in mass against Israel, and Saul had to respond. He mustered the Israelites' army in a rush and made his stance on Mount Geboa. They saw the sheer magnitude of the Philistine forces, and they were discouraged and disheartened. Saul became very afraid. With his options running out, and as a last resort, he asked God for help. God did not answer him. As suspected, the Israelites fell before the Philistines once the battle began. Most of the Israel soldiers died on Mount Geboa. Saul and his three sons were in danger of losing their lives. Because of Saul's disobedience, Saul eventually lost his three sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, and he himself was severely wounded by the enemy's arrow. Wanting to keep the pride as the king of Israel, he did not want to be killed at the hand of a Philistine. He ordered his armor-bearer to kill him. But his armor-bearer was too scared to follow the order. In the end, Saul ended his own life by falling on his sword. When the people of Israel saw the soldiers had fled and Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and ran. The Philistines moved into the cities, the Israelites vacated. 
These were important inland cities, now occupied by the Philistines. This concludes today's episode from Story of Kings. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Authentic Life. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We have been talking about what it means to point people to Jesus, and it's simply that we share what we have seen and heard and experienced with Jesus. That's our story. And every Christian has a story. And your story is what you've heard, what you've seen, and what you've experienced with Jesus. And when you share that, you are witnessing, because that basically is what a witness is. And there are different ways to witness. And as we're looking through the book of Acts, we're looking at how the early church pointed people to Jesus And we're taking lessons from that. And I think one of the most important ways that the world is pointed to Jesus is through the life of the church. Now, remember, when we say church, we're not just talking about buildings, okay? There's one denomination that I kind of appreciate what they do. They don't, on their buildings, say Church of Christ. They put Church of Christ meets here. And you can get very legalistic about that kind of thing. I'm not thinking of it that way, but I think that's a nice reminder that this building is not the church. When I was a kid, we had this thing that we would do or teach us at church. It would be, this is the church. Here's the steeple. Open the church and see all the people. The peoples, we're the church. Every single one of us, we're the church. And when we get together, the church is here. We are all part of the building block. Every one of you is kind of the building block of a spiritual building that we call the church. So when we talk about the church, don't think buildings. Think people. And in the book of Acts, the church life attracted people to Jesus. Church life, our lives together in Christ, sharing life together, is to... Point people to Jesus, because as a group, we say, this is what we have seen, this is what we have heard, and this is what we have experienced with Jesus. And it's a powerful thing when great numbers of people come together and they share that. It's a wonderful thing. The New Testament church was powerful, and we see its birth on the day the church was born, 3,000 people were saved. They were baptized. Later, there'll be another 2,000. In a very short time, there'll be 5,000 people saved. I mean, that's evangelism, isn't it? And so very soon, the church began to just kind of organically become what we know is church today. Well, which maybe we should know as church today. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're going to look through verse 47, and here we have the template of the early church. What was important? And you notice by omission things that might not be as important. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I see four things, Bible study, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, and awe, that's Reverence, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day and by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was filled with life. How does church life look? How does the life that points to Jesus look? I came up with an acronym. The L in the word life stands for learning. Life was all about learning the word. I mean, that's the very first thing. And they continued, they devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. A healthy church places a priority on Bible study, teaching, and learning the word of God. The church was birthed through this like three and a half minute sermon, but it was all Bible verses because the word of God has the power to convict and to convert. And the word of God does the work of God. So if you need some spiritual thing, you gotta understand that it's the word of God that does that. Because say this book is supernatural. Lift up your Bible and say this book is supernatural. It is not like any other book in the world. The Bible speaks the words of God. God said, I got something to say. And so God's holy prophets wrote down the word. And this is what God wants us to know. Not only that, when God says something, there's power. The word of God, Hebrews says, is alive and powerful. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's able to do special work. That's what he's saying. This book is alive, okay? The word does in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, when I preach to you, I thank God that you receive the word, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is able to do its work in you. See, the word of God does a work in your life, in your heart that nothing else can do. There are great devotional books. There's great podcasts you can listen to. There's all sorts of things, but it's the word of God that does the work of God. How many say amen to that? And so Christians, we exalt the Bible. We listen to the word of God because we believe these are the very pages of his presence. If you want to get to know God, you get to know his word because this God says, I have exalted my word above my name. And Jesus says, These are the words of life. So they went forward and they were teaching the word. And people were learning the word. Throughout the book of Acts, like in Acts 5 and 11, it says every day they would get together and they would be learning and teaching the word of God. The apostles, here's one in Acts 15.35. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Acts 11, 26, and it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and they taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. For an entire year they were teaching, Acts 18, and Paul settled in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What builds you up is the word of God, and you have to learn the word of God in order to grow. The Bible has the answers to life's tough questions. It has the answers. People are searching. We know the answers. We know where the answers are found. 
We need a steady diet of the word of God to grow in Christ. It says, and they devoted themselves to teaching. Some translation says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Learn. Christians are learners, not just observers. We are learners, and there's so much to learn about God, and it's cool stuff. The more I know my Bible, the more I know about God. I want to know God better. How about you? The more I know my Bible, the more I know about Jesus, about his grace, about the things that please God. It's good because all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. God's work equips us. And so the very first thing was learning. That was the big part of the life of the church. The second thing was interceding or intercession. Interceding. What is interceding? Well, it's one word for prayer. Okay, interceding, intercession is one word for prayer that starts with I. So that's why I picked it. Intercession, praying. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in what? Prayers. And boy, the prayer life of the early church was fantastic. Reading about it in the book of Acts. I had the privilege of doing this, and I'm ahead of you and able to put these things together. And as I was looking through the prayer life of the early church, I thought, man, this is different than how I live my life a lot. And I'm encouraged to move on and move up. Their prayers, lives are impressive. Prayer was a priority. You know what? The early church, and this was not forced on them, but the early church prayed three times a day. They had set times. Third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, they would pray every day. And often, at those times, they would pray the Lord's Prayer. Even before the Apostle John died, this was the habit of the early church. And I thought that's really cool. So you know what I've done is you can, on your phone, you know, you can set alarms to go off three times a day, every day of the week. You know, it doesn't have to be a, you know, a foghorn going off, you know. But just something that is a reminder, if you have your phone with you, to pray. And that way, I follow in this early church tradition. And it's not that we don't pray all through the day, but it is a reminder to stay in touch with headquarters throughout the day, right? Bring me back to, well, I'm not my decider, God is. I'm not the one who plans my day completely, God is. God sometimes interrupts your day, doesn't he? But it helps me to pray. And I don't go and leave the room, generally I don't go anyplace. It's just right where I'm at. I might even be in the midst of a meeting or a counseling session. I feel my phone vibrate or I can you know, hear a little ping and I realize quick communication. You can do that, right? Kind of a cool idea, I thought. Their prayers were answered powerfully. 
I mean, there's one time where it says the place where they were praying was shaken. I've never prayed and have anything shake, okay? Never had it shaken. And I don't think that means that prayers that are powerful have to have something like that happen, but it is pretty important that I, we realize that prayer is powerful. And you know what, guys? Sometimes we don't have answers to prayer because we don't ask. The apostle James says, you don't have because you don't ask. And recognize God's provision. You know, that lady, she was driving around and, and she really didn't want to have to walk in the hot parking lot in the summer. And so she's praying, oh, God, please, God, help me find a parking spot, God, please. And Please, God, I need your help. Help me, God. And right there, a lady, just as she's going by, a lady's pulling out, and she begins to pull in her car, and she says, never mind, God, instead of realizing, no, that was an answer to prayer. Some of us don't have because we don't ask. Ask God for big things. Some of us don't have because we ask for with bad motives. You know, we're not asking for the right reasons. Some of us don't have because answers to our prayers because we're not in right relationship with important people in our lives, the Bible says. God wants to answer prayers. He wants us to ask for things. And sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. And God must be thinking, you know, well, wow, I've had this for you the whole time. I wish you would ask for it because it certainly is my will to give it to you. But you're acting like... You don't have a loving daddy who loves to give you things. God has things stored up, blessings stored up for you that he wants to pour out on you. He's that kind of God, you understand? He's not trying to hold things away. He wants to give. He wants to bless. Man, their prayers set prisoners free. Their prayers and fasting sent out missionaries that changed the world. They prayed when they were in trouble, and they believed the answer to a lot of the problems of their world and their politics and all that were found in prayer. So learning was so important. Praying, intercession was really important like it is in every Christian's life. It should be in the church's life. And the F would be fellowship. I think that's pretty clear. We point people to Jesus by the way we Fellowship. The word for fellowship, you see in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The word for fellowship is koinonia. Who's ever heard of that word before? Anybody hear of that word? And it's a Greek word that means sharing in something together. And the real picture of it, probably the origin of the word, is like when people in the Middle East would eat a meal. They would actually eat on their elbows. They would lay on cushions and they'd eat. And there would be the food in the middle and people would take like their pita bread and they would dip it in the same pot and they would all eat together. And you see, the whole idea was we share in something common together. What gives me life? That stew is giving you life and it's giving you life and we all have a common source of life. It's going to be like what happens to you who celebrate the Super Bowl. See, I I say celebrate like it's Easter Sunday or something, right? I was thinking about that. There are two Sundays that are real big to Christians. One is Easter and the other is Super Bowl. 
Hopefully Easter stays up there, you know. So, but when you make that delicious Lipton onion, onion soup dip, how many say amen to that? With the potato chips. And you dip in that. And of course, we all know what, not to what, double dip. So when you dip it in there, and I'm dipping in it, and we're sharing koinonia, fellowship. And so when you celebrate at 4.30, and then some of you will go on to mourn, your week will be terrible. You will have, though, celebrated fellowship together. We're told day by day, attending the temple together, they broke bread in their homes, received their food with gladness and generous hearts. I mean, I don't know how you can separate fellowship from food. I almost made that F food, frankly. Life in the church. I mean, food. You know, how do we not do food as Christians? I mean, food is amazing. Part of being a family is you eat together and fellowship together. And it says the breaking of bread they shared together and they had meals. I mean, in the early church, I want to explain this, ate and they would have the Lord's Supper at the same meal. They didn't do it like we do it. You know, it's church service and it's disconnected from a food They actually, it was part of their actual meal and time together. Most first century, second, third century Christians were all slaves and very poor. Now, there were some exceptions to that. Some very wealthy women, men, some people way up high in political places, millionaires. They would open their homes. A lot of them would have great big churches meet in their homes. Because people were poor... They couldn't get together until work was over. And the Romans did not have a Monday through Saturday week. They just counted days from one holiday to another. It was Jewish people that had a seven-day week because they observed the Sabbath. And it was Christians who had a seven-day week because they observed the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. So Christians and Jews kept the seven-day week going. So When Sunday came and Christians were going to meet together, they had to wait till evening. So probably the Lord's Day meetings were in the evening because people had to work. And slavery in those days was not like slavery here with the tragedy of the African-American slaves. This was a different thing whatsoever. They weren't beaten. They weren't treated like animals or anything like that. It was like indentured servitude. It was like You could not pay off your MasterCard, so now you must work for your MasterCard the rest of your life. Some of you are nearly there. You know, so they would, so, or you would sell your child to, but it wasn't like a lot of times you would work with your child, but your child, you would have to give it his payment or you would go to jail, debtor's jail. And it sounds so weird to all of us, unless, Like me, one year, not enough was withheld from my paychecks. And when it came tax time, we owed, it might as well have been a billion dollars to us. How are we going to do this? And it's the IRS. Nothing strikes terror more than hearing the word Satan or IRS, right? (laughs) 
So what do I do? I called them up. Payment plan. No, we don't do that. I said, I don't know what to do. I said, do you take children? I have three of them. They laughed. They said, no, we don't take children. I said, oh, okay. I don't have much else to give. And I can't even remember how that thing worked out. I don't know how that all worked out, but I know, you know, that hasn't happened since. But, oh, so when the wealthy people were able to get to the meal first, and some of them who were rude started eating before the poor slaves were able to arrive. And by the time the poor slaves arrived, there wasn't a lot of food left over. That's always been a problem. Have you ever been in line at a potluck and the people in front of you are little piggies, right? And there's nothing left? I mean, there's nothing except the gross stuff. Obviously, nobody wants it. And they were doing that. And they were drinking too much. By the time the the slaves got there, later, the wealthy people had drank too much and they were tipsy. Then at the end of the meal, they would share the Lord's Supper. They would pass around a common cup. They would drink the wine and they would pass around the bread and they would each tear off some bread and they would eat the bread. But the, the slaves didn't have enough to eat and they weren't drunk but some of the wealthy or the people that got there sooner. That's why Paul says, do not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's what the unworthy manner was. And he says, because God doesn't like this, I'm paraphrasing. Some people had even died as judgment for doing that kind of thing. So serious business. But as part of their meal, They would usually end their meal with the Lord's Supper. So the breaking of bread, the fellowship, eating food together, it was tied up. It was a spiritual event. It was a great event of fellowship. Fellowship was shown in unity. Unity all around us. I mean, politics right now. Disunity and everybody's chosen their sides. And they could split a room like this. We started talking politics It could split us. Unity is what we are to maintain in Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's to be the unity in Christ. We are to do everything we possibly can to stay unified. And that may mean we don't talk about some things, but we talk about the things that are important in our spiritual walk. Worshiping with other believers is another way that we fellowship. It's kind of a no-brainer, but so many people don't. Well, I like learning about God's word, and I believe in prayer, but I think I can do without this church thing, okay? I'm telling you why, because first of all, God's word in Hebrews 10, you can look at it, Hebrews 10 to the right, not far from the last book of the Bible, Hebrews 10 is really clear, the writer of Hebrews, it's really clear that we must meet together and we must do it frequently. Or we won't be ready for the Lord's return. Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another. Oh, no, it says more than that. Some people think the verse ends there, don't they? And let us consider how to stir up one another to what? Love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The New Living Translation says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. No one intends in January to only come to church 12 times the next year. But that's what's happening with a lot of people. It was up until a couple years ago, a fact that people only went to church twice a month. And that was good if you could get people twice a month to church. And that's a lot of the reason why announcements are made over and over because not everybody is here at one time. And there are good reasons, great reasons why you can't be here every single week. I understand that. But there are also not very good reasons. And so if you don't put priority on worship and fellowship and getting together with God's people, number one, you're out of harmony with the Bible that you say you respect. Secondly, you're letting God's people down because your presence is needed. And third, you're going to grow cold. Unless you cannot go to church, if you cannot... In any way, God will give you supernatural grace. He really will. He'll give you what you need. But if you can, podcast isn't church. Online isn't church. Church is done with people, okay? All the one another's in the Bible. We love one another. We encourage one another. We serve one another. There's all these one another's in the Bible, and you can't do those without another. There has to be another. Paul Turnier said, There are two things we can't do alone. One, to be married, and the others, to be a Christian. It always involves relationships, okay? Always involves those relationships, one another. The E of life. Let me me see if with my my eyes closed, I can. L is learning. I is what? Intercession. F is fellowship, E is evangelism. A life, a church full of life is going to have a heart for evangelism and outreach. And I love what our church does. I love seeing the outreach. I love seeing all different kinds of evangelistic activities from, you know, the, the very typical kind of evangelistic outreach to the atypical to things that are way outside of the box. You know, oh, that's a cool way to reach people for Jesus. That's a great way to kind of till up the ground to get them ready for another way to reach them. I love it. There's all sorts of things that we can do as believers that count as evangelism. There was an ad in Newsweek magazine that said, last year, Americans traveled... 350 billion miles and never found what they were looking for. That is such a picture of the world, you guys. People traveling, looking here and there and to and fro and not finding what they're looking for. Because what they're looking for is Jesus. Amen. Looking for Jesus in all the wrong places. But here we are. We're the church. We can express and give testimony to what we've seen and heard and experienced with the Lord Jesus. When people come into 
church together. They sense the Holy Spirit. They sense something different. God convicts. God encourages. There's tears. There's laughter. There's peace and there's life. God will put you together with somebody that needs to hear your story. When I was baptizing all those people last weekend, I like to ask the question, when did the Lord save you and how did the Lord save you? And so many times, nearly every time, people say somebody else told them about Jesus. Somebody else. Now, it's rare. They say, I just read the Bible and boom, I was saved. Awesome. The word of God does the work of God. Some people watched something, saw something. But generally, it is one person sharing their story with somebody else. And God makes sure your story is going to be matched with just the right person. And it'll be a perfect fit. You look for those opportunities. And it's my prayer that we be the kind of church that has real book of Acts kind of life. How about you guys? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is our prayer. We want to be like what we read in the word. We want to be a church like that. We love our church. We love what you're doing. We love one another. And we believe the world will look in and say, look how they love one another. They must be Jesus' disciples. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Choi. I am the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Today, let's begin by reading John chapter 14, verse 6, which says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Greek word for truth is aletheia, which means Reality, true to fact, truth in the moral sphere, divine truth revealed to men, sincerity of mind and integrity of character, and a mode of life in harmony with divine truth. Our Heavenly Father is the perfect expression of eternal truth. Let's praise Him by magnifying His holy name. Father, You are the way, You are the truth, and You are the life. You are the perfect expression of the truth. You rule with mercy, truth, and righteousness. Father, we praise you with melodies of overflowing thanksgiving for sending us your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. What a great honor it is that you would choose us as your temple and your Spirit of Resurrection, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us. Holy Spirit, you are the counselor, comforter, encourager, intercessor, and helper. You teach us everything we need to know. You guide us into all truth. You lead us in your footsteps of pure righteousness. You save us from our enemies in supreme victory. You fill us with your mighty power so we can be your witnesses to the ends of the earth.
We worship and adore you with all of our passion. There is none like you. Amen. Before we continue, let us acknowledge our sins and confess them with repentant hearts. John chapter 17, verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Greek word for sanctify is hagiazo, which means to make holy, consecrate, purify, to separate from things profane, and dedicate to God. Brothers and sisters, have you ever struggled with impurity, lust, evil desire, anger, rage, cursing, and filthy speech? Our loving Father desires to purify us and separate us from all these sins so we can truly live as His new creation in abundant life that Jesus fully paid for with His precious blood. Let's pray. Father, please search our hearts. We surrender ourselves to you. We repent before you of our sins of impurity, sinful desire, lust, anger, rage, and abusive and filthy language. Lord, create in us clean hearts. Sanctify us in your eternal truth. We desire to live our lives in holiness and purity that delights your heart. Amen. Our God is honored when we come before Him in gratitude. John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32 says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. My brothers and sisters, as we continually embrace the reality of Christ and abide in His Word by obeying and living accordingly in action, it brings freedom into our lives. Let's give God our radical thanksgiving for the gift of freedom. Father, thank you for completely setting us free from the penalty and power of sin. We will walk with you in freedom for we seek to follow your truth. Lord, thank you for blessing us to live joyously in your spirit as we celebrate our freedom through the gift of your perfect righteousness. Amen. And now, let us lift up the next generation before the throne of grace. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
The Greek word for renew is anakinosis, which means a renewal achieved by God's power, a change of heart and life, completing a process of making fresh and new, renovation, and a transformation that takes place at the deepest recesses of the human heart. Let's ask God to transform the next generation through a renewal by His power of the Holy Spirit. Father, You're the one and only God. We bow down before Your divine presence and bring You our deepest worship as we experience Your tender love and Your living truth. Holy Spirit, Fill us with your burning heart of compelling love and overflowing compassion as we cry out for the next generation. Fill this generation with divine courage and boldness by your Holy Spirit so they will not compromise their faith by conforming to this world. Bless this generation with a candor of mind. that is free from deception, confusion, pretense, falsehood, and deceit. Transform their minds by your spirit of truth through a total reformation of kingdom mindsets and biblical worldviews based on your truth and divine wisdom. Bless their lives to be shaped by integrity and righteousness. Father, deliver them from every ungodly influence in our culture, entertainment, and media. Deliver them from forces of darkness that have invaded many of this generation through addictions to drugs, alcohol, media, video games, and pornography. Lord, by the power of your precious blood, You have completely set us free from the penalty and power of sin. So in your mighty name, we boldly declare that the next generation is free from these addictions. Father, flood their hearts and minds with heavenly realities and kingdom revelations. Give them understanding hearts so they can passionately know and obey your truth. Guide them in their choices and decisions into your shining path that pleases you. Holy Spirit, fill them with the power of your resurrection life and complete freedom so they will live as pure children of God as your shining lights in this world. and they will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel to the nations. In your glorious name we pray. Amen. Where?
where the grapes of wrath are stored He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword His truth is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah His truth is marching on trumpet that shall never call retreat he is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat oh be swift my soul to answer him be jubilant my feet our god is marching on glory glory hallelujah glory glory hallelujah glory glory hallelujah Christ was born across the sea with the glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me as he died to make men holy let us live to make men free while God is marching on glory glory hallelujah glory glory hallelujah glory glory hallelujah The glory of the morning on the wave He is wisdom to the mighty He is succor to the brave So the world shall be his footstool And the soul of time is slave Our God is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.